0: production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Cameron Daddo is one of Australia's most loved entertainers, adored by people across all ages and backgrounds. As an actor and mental health activist, he's grown wise through his work on human flourishing. For someone who has achieved so much, he has also not been without his share of pain. In this conversation, we discuss his struggles with depression and anxiety, accepting setbacks and moving through them, and why cultivating community is critical.
1: We're not alone. The power of sharing is incredible. You know, I find that when talking suicide or getting really down and getting to that place, it's, I've discovered it's more about not wanting to feel a certain way. I don't want to feel this anymore, so I need to find a... We have to find different ways to not feel or to get through a feeling. And often within a team setting, just being witnessed in the sharing and witnessing is such a powerful tool.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg... And this is a life of greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth, and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Cameron Dado is the founder of men's team which is about coming together, talking, listening and learning to become more resilient. This conversation is soulful and at times emotional and overall a celebration of the human spirit in all its boundlessness. I really enjoyed my chat with Cameron, May our exchange leave you seeking to live more courageously and explore the way you think and above all, the impact you leave on others. Cameron Dado, welcome to A Life of Greatness. You're a household name in Australia, but the reason that I had you on today or what, how you came to my mind as we were just chatting about this before is that we were at the Australian Commercial Radio Awards a couple of weeks ago. And you're in at the table behind me with people from Nova uh, and Smooth. And I thought to myself, because I'm always on alert for the podcast. It's my number one number one interest. I thought he would be good. And what happened two days later or something, I reached out to you and here you go.
1: What a lesson. And what a what a privilege to be here, Sarah. Because I've heard the podcast and you've had some amazing guests and I was like, "What is she having me on for?" <laughs> it was lovely, lovely to receive the invitation, and you taught me something. It's that if you don't, if you don't ask for what you want, you're never going to get it.
0: It's funny you say that because I just came from a weekend away in Sydney where I saw people who are in the personal development space would know Abraham Hicks, Esther Hicks, very um, old school law of attraction, but one of the books that's written is ask and it's given. That was one of the first when I got into personal development and I think when everyone does, that is the God book that you're given. And I remember thinking, wow, really? Is that true? But as you mentioned, I did look at you and think, I'm going to reach out to you. And in my head, I knew that you would come on. And I'm not saying that from an arrogant reason. I just thought that knowing a bit about your story, that this podcast would align with you and your values. And one thing that she was saying over the weekend is that if your manifestation as such, me thinking that I wanted you on and then you coming on is a manifestation of what I desired, if it doesn't come to fruition, there's some sort of block in between you and that manifestation because when you talk about manifestation, the quantum field and all that kind of stuff, it's that everything there is possible for you, everything that you desire. But if it doesn't come, it means that there's some sort of block. So maybe for you, you just need to ask more, Cameron.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's true. Someone actually gave me a book on manifestation many years ago saying you, it was weird because they're like, you are the master manifester, you Cameron Dado," And yet, she was giving me a book on it. And I'm like, so if I'm a master manifester, why are you give me a book on it? <laughs> you know? But I think it's also in doing that, like you said, you had no doubt in your mind that I was going to say yes. And I think that's part of it. When we believe so deeply that it's going to happen, you prepare for it and you think in those terms that it's yeah. already happened.
0: Well, we're very happy to have you on. I want to start at the beginning because I know that you're one of five and there's a lot of people that aren't from Australia that listen to this podcast, but the Daddo family was a very well-known family in Australia and you've got a sister and then a lot of brothers. And I want to know how it was growing up with so many children, your parents, how was your upbringing?
1: Well, to me it was idyllic. We have five kids. I'm one of four brothers and my sister was very brave to come first and be the icebreaker. my mother is a creative force. She's a potter. She's an artist. She, uh, she's a, a naturopath. Put herself through naturopathy school in America and in Australia. We lived in the States in the early eighties. Dad was a businessman. And so, yeah, five kids... There were definite rules, and my wife often speaks about this. That there's so many unspoken rules in the Dado household, and if you don't know them, you (laughs) you can you can end up on the outer pretty quick. And and on the outer, I mean, is by my dad sitting there raising an eyebrow at you, or (laughs) mum going, "Mm -mm, "That's not the way we do it here." Sort of thing. It's like, oh God, mum. What are the rules? Oh, no, farting at the table. Hats off. Just little kind of dumb things like yes. that. And because my brothers and I are all boundary pushers, and my mother, that's the thing, my mum is a boundary pusher. I remember vividly, we grew up in our formulative years we were in Mount Eliza in, in Melbourne. Oh. Yeah, and mum <laughs> driving past, we're all in the car, five of us in the car, and she had five kids before she was 30. Jeez. So everything was very organized, including twins. And mum pulling up outside a, a house that was abandoned and she's just pulled up. Where are you going, mum? She goes, oh, I'll be back in a minute. And she kicks, pushes open the front door. And five minutes later, she's come out with two baking trays, cast iron baking trays. And we're like, what's that? She says, well, no one will miss them. <laughs> what <you> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She just came out with the baking trays. Um, This is 1973 or something (laughs) like that. And yeah, she just grabbed the baking trays. And so that was an incredibly big moment for an impressionable seven, eight year old that I was. I was like, wow, you just get, if it's, if it's empty, if no one's standing next to it, you can have
0: it. Yes.
1: You know, we went off for our yearly holiday up north to Yamba. We all piled into Dad's car, seven of us in the car. So that was an exercise in really patience because it was a two day trip in the car, four of us lined up in oh, the back wow. seat. Lockie, the young one, was in the middle. Mum and they had bucket seats, so dad had a piece of foam rubber cut for the middle of the seat. <laughs> Jammed in there. So Lockie's bum was sitting over the top of the handbrake. <laughs> and the car was full of our stuff, surfboards, fishing rods on the roof that one day blew off when a big truck went past up the Newell <laughs> Highway. So it was a it was a big adventure and a lot of competition between Jamie and Andrew, who are identical twins, and Lockie and I. We were a team. I was the yes. oldest, Lockie was the youngest, and the two twins. So it was full of sports and fresh air. Mum would often say, get out. Get out of the house. Go on, run around the house three times. Get out, get outside, your miserable little baskets, she would say.
0: Bless her.
1: <laughs> we go running around the house, you know.
0: And are you close with your siblings?
1: Very close. We all, we all still communicate. I see Andrew a lot. We swim together. We play golf together. Lockie and I are always talking. Um, Jamie, who's went through a, a pretty traumatic accident when he was 18. He was hit by a car. He's still in Melbourne and has created a wonderful niche for himself as a painter. Oh, wow. Uh, an artist. Uh, and he does beautiful work, yeah.
0: And tell me, how did you get into entertainment? Why, why did you choose that field?
1: So we lived in Sydney, up to about 1971 and then we moved to this home in Mount Eliza and it had a player pianola upstairs and it's the only time I ever heard my dad play the piano he was showing us through this house and there we are toddling through five kids and mom dad showing us through this amazing big place and there was a piano up there and dad sat down and he played fleur de lis on the piano and it was like oh my god it blew my mind I mean I was seven And I'd never, I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never seen my dad do anything like it. And so consequently, through the next 10 years, I taught myself to play piano on that, on that piano. And my brother was given a guitar and he didn't like it. So I strung it left-handed and I taught myself what I knew on the piano onto the guitar and vice versa. I heard other things on the guitar that I could teach myself onto the piano. So music was the first thing that I did. And put a little band together with my mates at school, and we jammed upstairs because we couldn't move the piano anywhere else. And so then I got attention because I was blessed with my mum's looks, I suppose, and dad, well, dad's a handsome fella too. <laughs> <laughs> so and we, I did, we did pretty well. The gene yeah, pool was.
0: Started off strong. Yeah,
1: it's a commodity. You know, I can look at it and go, oh, yeah, I look back at pictures of me at age 21 and go, handsome fella. And so mum, this is how it happened. Really. I was walking to school and, and a a modeling agency was on the way and I needed to use a phone and I accidentally walked in there not knowing what it was. And they were like, would you think about modeling? And I'm like, "Mm, what's that? And then they told me and within, I don't know, a month I was doing just jeans commercials Crunchy ass. Yeah, I know. Weird. Just, just stumbling in. But my mum told me about a palmist. Her name was Kitty. She said, go see her. Cause I was always searching and I had a stutter that was holding me back a lot, creating a lot of anxiety as a boy growing up a teenager. And anyway, I went and saw Kitty and, and she gave me this advice to say yes to opportunity, whatever came up, just say yes. So things started coming and opportunities. Do you, want to, do you want to do a Crunchy Bar commercial? Yes. Do you want to do a, a audition for this television show, Star Search? Yes. And then, <laughs> okay. I mean, I had no clue, Yeah. Sarah. I had no clue what I was doing.
0: Did you enjoy it?
1: I didn't enjoy the anxiety of yeah. of it. I enjoyed the attention mm. that I got. And for someone who, growing up, Just, I was always looking for attention and I know that through therapy and things now.
0: Is that because you had so many siblings and you felt like you didn't get your parents' attention because there were so many of you?
1: Ah, you just nailed it. Yes, are we in therapy now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that's what I've found out. It's
0: kind of obvious. I mean, in the sense that if you come from a family that is quite large, I mean, especially because your mum had all the kids before she was 30 and that's so young and Mm. bless her, they're always just trying to do the best that they can. But I mean, I find it, I've got two kids and I find it hard to give them attention. So I can only imagine what it would be like with five.
1: It certainly informed how Alison and I set up our family. Yeah. Leaving three or four years between kids so that each of those, each of our children got the space they needed and the time and the attention that they needed before a sibling came through.
0: Because mm.
1: I was not two before mum had twins. Yes. And and she's told me. She said, you, you're such a happy baby. We would put you out in the sandpit and you'd play out there for a couple of hours with the dog. And I'm like, wow, okay. That's, you know. And I know, as you say, our parents, and I think about it now as a parent, we do the very best we can mm. all the time for our Always. kids. Always. thinking about that. Um, just what's the best thing? So... And I know that's the, that's the way mum and dad were. And certainly through their actions, it was always that way. But uh, when you're one of five and all of us had a story, we all came home with a story. We all came home with a bunch of flowers across, because we walk across the paddock. we pick wattle and all sorts Aww. of stuff for mum. You know, bring it her home. Here, yeah, mum, i got this for you. You know, Oh, that's great, Cam. Good day. You put them in a vase. You put them in a vase, Andrew. Yeah, Jub, You put them in a vase. So, <laughs> that's
0: so, so kind, was, though.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I guess it was anything to get attention. So yeah. I that's that's very glib and flip. But um but that's the way it was. So it's sort of they do say, I have heard this, that what you do to survive as a child will be your undoing as an adult. Really? Mm.
0: Have you ever heard that? I haven't, but it makes sense. How do you feel that's played out in your life?
1: Oh, I feel that in searching for attention or or looking for validation. Yes has certainly played out uh, in as an adult to my detriment. I've cared too much about what people think and say about me. Mm. And so in that, it's been a distraction from, from what my intention is.
0: I think in the entertainment industry, you would not be alone in that. I mean, I did acting my whole life and I all I wanted to do was be an actor when I was young and mm. did plays and studied theatre and all this kind of stuff, right? And then mm. I remember at the National Theatre in Melbourne, they said 99% of actors are unemployed, so if you think of doing this as a profession, you should probably have a backup. Yeah. And then I veered into like PR and marketing and then came back into producing and then hosting. And I saw through having an agent and being in commercials I saw what it was like. I mean, I only got a taste for it, not not to the amount that you got. And it's harsh. They base everything on the way that you look. Literally, I'd be going into auditions. They'd be like, face the camera, stand to the right, stand to the left. Mm. You barely said a word and then they'd mm. pick you based on that. So even though you wanted attention because you were young, I would say even if people didn't have the background that you had growing up, they're still going into an environment where it, It is so solely based on the way that you look and very basic things that aren't the soul of who you are and and your skills.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a tough game. And often at auditions, and that was my experience in Los Angeles, 25 years of starting again, you know, each Mm. each audition is a – starting again i know there was a room of other guys who were number one on the call sheet sitting out there in of a call sheet of another show sitting out there starting again and they often make their mind up producers casting directors will make their mind up when you're three steps in the room you haven't even opened your mouth for various reasons because everyone has their own version of what they want yeah it's a peculiar game And one that I always tell people, you just have to want to do it with every fibre of your being. And if it's about being famous, forget it. Don't do it because it's only going to lead you down a a path of misery.
0: And you were on perfect match because when I, (laughs) you know, when you know someone, I'm like, I know Cameron Daddo. In my mind, I can't think of what I actually know him from. It's just like yeah, right. you're this wonderful person that's an Australian household name, but I couldn't place where it was that I knew you. And yeah. then I was doing research. I was like, Perfect Match. I forgot about that show. Yeah. And you did that when you were so young, you're only 21. Yeah. Firstly, how was that? And then what led you to want to go to the States?
1: Perfect Match came about. So I was hosting an afternoon kids TV show prior to that called Off the Dish. And then Perfect Match came. Greg Evans had left the network to go to another network to become a nighttime variety host. And they shelved him. They only took him so they could mess Perfect Match up because it was a juggernaut. And then Channel 10 asked me to do it. And I said, no, I like my TV show with my kids. I love that. And I was having such a great time. And then I was pulled aside by the boss and he said, you actually have to audition for this where, where, you know, I'm like, oh, all right. So I had a stern talking to, and in the end I got it. And that was my first impression for a lot of people into Australia. And that's what I've learned too. You only get one chance at a first impression. Mm. So if that's it, then that's often how people see you. So I've had throughout my career in Australia, which was one of the reasons why I went to Los Angeles, was because people couldn't get past me being the host of Perfect Match. Mm. And at that point when we did leave, which was when I was 27, I'd won a couple of Logies for my acting and had a great series on TV and – Things were going quite well, but I still couldn't make that leap over because people. I kept hearing oh, he's a game show host, mm. and I thought I need to go away and start again. Yes. So that was the that was the catalyst to move to Los Angeles.
0: How did that go when you started again?
1: It was amazing. I mean, it didn't take long to. Well, there's a process that happened back then in 1992. That was one you had to secure a. Screen Actors Guild card, the SAG card to work on SAG projects, which are, that's the union. That was the main union. So I had to get the SAG card. So you have to get a job first. And so I managed to pick up a job in the first sort of month or so after getting an agent and doing the manager thing. Got my SAG card pretty quick. And then within about, I don't know, a year, I was on a Aaron Spelling show called Models Inc.
0: Oh
1: yeah. Yes. So yeah. So then it, it just, It sort of rolled from there really up until 2000, 2002, it went, uh, you know, it was amazing. So I was really blessed. I mean, my career from in Australia, I just, I just, it was like, I couldn't put a foot wrong. Everything I did, I got a nomination for an award or won an award Mm -hmm. for. So I just thought that's what happened. That's what happened every time I go out. So when I went to the Los Angeles, I thought, well, no worries. I'll, I'll you know, I've got my Logies and I've got a couple of theatre awards and, and I can do this and, uh, yeah. and I'm, the, I'm the most qualified unknown in Hollywood right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love how you said, I've got my Logies.
1: <laughs> yeah, i got my Logies, mate. I've got
0: my Logies in the back. That's yeah. so impressive.
1: <laughs> yeah, and a piece of, and a, and a people's choice and off I go. And, and so I'm hot shit. I don't ever th- thought I was hot shit because I always thought I was a bit of an imposter.
0: Yeah.
1: Because I was learning on the way. Yeah. I didn't go to drama school. That was the thing. I didn't...
0: Well, didn't you go to drama school? No. Even sir, I went to drama school.
1: No, I was told not to.
0: But obviously a natural.
1: Uh, well, probably <laughs> that was it. I was natural. I don't yes. know if I natural, but I certainly had a natural quality about it and I was told by the NIDA drama school in Sydney not to audition because whilst I was doing Perfect Match, I was studying with a couple of their teachers oh. and they said, we will, we will belt your instincts out of you. Your instincts are very good. We don't, we don't want to mess with you. So you're wow. not right for this. Yeah. So I thought, okay, but that set up something in the back of my mind. If someone offered me or said, you know, Shakespeare, I'd quiver and sh- I'd be like, I can't do it because everyone knows the words, you know, the audiences, yes. are, they know the text. And if I mess it up or if I mess up the I- iambic, tempata, uh, I- iambic, I can't even say it, um, the, <laughs> if I mess up the rhythm yes. of it, they're going to know. And so I am this imposter. I am not, I've not studied all, that was in the back of my mind. So it was always this little worm mm. going through me. And so what ha- ended up happening was I was just, I became very grateful for the other actors that were around me that had done it. Like I worked with John Bell. I asked him, there you go, we're well back to that. I asked him if he could teach me
0: mm-hmm. Shakespeare.
1: And he did. Yeah. He taught me and we'd go Wednesdays and, and we'd have Wednesdays and he said there has to be an exchange. Mm. So you figure that out. And I said, well, what about some money if I pay you? So he took 20 bucks a lesson. Really? Yeah, amazing generosity from the greatest Shakespearean actor in the country. So I have very fond memories of that time and with him, his generosity. Mm. And I was also working with some incredible Australian film actors on the miniseries and things that I was doing. So I would sit down. This is before monitors, yeah. the directors sitting off in a monitor city, looking at monitors. They'd sit by the camera and I'd sit next to th- I'd sit next to them by the camera and I'd watch John Hargraves or Johnny Hewitt or mm. Baish or whoever it was from New Zealand, great actors, do their thing. And so I became that's that was my university.
0: Wow. So you're in America and there's that time you're talking about on Models Inc. Mm. where everything was happening and it sounds like it was really fun. What is it like when you're in the real glitz and glamour of of being on a great show and Mm. how was that time?
1: Uh, Well, it was very seductive. It wasn't a great time for me personally. Ali and I had only been married eight months before we moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. She was struggling in Los Angeles. She didn't know what she wanted to do. She certainly knew, she knew that she didn't want to be a model anymore Mm -hmm. and she had a very successful modeling career in Australia and here I was on this TV show and getting a lot of attention. And like I said, it it was very seductive. I even had a producer turn around to me and he said this to me after a scene one day, he goes, I smell Emmy. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) like, what? Excuse me. He goes, I smell Emmy. And I said, "What, what are you talking about? He goes, that was great. What you just did was great, Cameron. You know, and I'm like, okay. And I didn't have the thinking Models Inc. is going to be nominated, an actor on Models Inc. who's part of an an ensemble cast is going to be, but I believed him. I believed him because I had two Logies and and a People's Choice Award. And I'm like, yeah, baby, this is it. This
0: is it. But it's that yes people thing, isn't it? You can see Mm. Justin Bieber and people like that who have done so well, but they had their falls from grace. If they're around, even Michael Jackson, if they're around people constantly saying, you're amazing, you're amazing, yes, 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 Mm. you become out of control because there's no boundaries there anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I certainly lost my way. Ali and I, we split and we split for about, Eight months. I went and lived with uh, a mate of mine up on Mulholland Drive in this incredible house, li- living up upstairs from or oh, the, the block below. Julian Lennon was there, and we had uh, we had Ernest Borgnine out the front, and then up the road was Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, and Marlon Brando's compound. You know, it was it was just ridiculous. I mean, I ended up writing. I wrote a lot of songs during that time about it, and I've got a song called Hollywood Hell that is all of that moment and where my finances were in place with a a money manager. I had an acting manager and I was so separated from my heart. I was just completely divorced from my heart. So I went into therapy and that's when I was like, okay, I got to get this together. And, um,
0: but were you partying a lot? Like, what were you doing during that time? I can imagine you just at mm. these amazing parties with these super cool people. I mean, because I could imagine this would happen with most people. It would get to your head after a while. You would just think that you were the bee's knees.
1: Yeah. Well, I had a little bit of that, but I also had drugs have never been a thing for me. I've never, yeah. I, I just, that's not been in my wheelhouse because I've never been comfortable with that feeling. So, uh, so I wasn't partying that, that way. I mean, I, I would, my, my problem was at that point, if I had too much to drink and I, my defenses would come down and so yeah. end up doing dumb things. But what was I doing? I mean, I, was, I turned to my music. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of that and, you know, and trying to figure out what went wrong with Ali. Cause I knew or well, what went wrong with me and Ali. Nothing was wrong with her. And it was yes. what we, we discovered that it was what we were bringing to the relationship, each of us. That was our baggage. That was where we were just exploding.
0: Well, at that time you said you separated with Ali for um, a number of months. Why did you want to do that? Separate? Mm.
1: Oh, I left. I left, the, I left our relationship. I'd found someone else yeah and i i left so that was that was going to be it for me and then one day i just went this is not the answer Mm -hmm. so i i shut that down pretty quickly and work started working with this therapist on not so much fixing my relationship with allison but but trying to figure out who i was Mm -hmm. and what i wanted and from that part from those discoveries that i made i realised that I wanted to be in a relationship with her and I still loved her, you know, mm. a lot and came back to that initial intention with her.
0: What did you learn through therapy at that time about yourself?
1: I mean, I learned lots of things and what, like one of those things was my, because to understand what you're doing today, you have to know where you've come from. Yeah. And so as we talked about very early uh, in, in this chat about where did I come from as a child? How did I behave as a child? And what were my needs and were they met?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I just understood that I, I just had a lot of, I was just insecure,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and, and so it was more about finding that that if, there's, if I'm not part of the cool, cool club, it's like I am the cool club. I, I've got to be my cool club sort yeah. of thing. I've got I've to be okay with my own company. And so I remember during that time, and Ali did it too. She, I, I went off to the desert. I got a car, I rented a four wheel drive, and I went to Arizona. And I drove to the Grand Canyon. I got lost in the desert in Hopi Hopi land, mm. <laughs> completely lost, um, which was terrifying. And um, but I, I went there for, for I don't know, it was probably a week and a half, just on my own to figure out. You got, I'd, I've got to get comfortable with my own company.
0: It's interesting you talk about the cool club and being your own cool club because from the work that I've done and the people that I've spoken to, you know what I've realised makes you the coolest person when you're authentically you. Yeah. And the people that are the most comfortable just being them, Mm. they're the people that you admire and go, wow, you are the cool person because at school we always want to be like everyone else. Mm. And then when you're older, you realise to be authentically you, warts and all, is the best version. You show up every day not pretending mm. to be a chameleon and trying to mimic someone else just to mm. fit into a relationship. You are your true self. Mm. That is so appealing to so many people.
1: Mm, I absolutely agree. It's really hard. If you're being, trying to be someone else, it's hard to, it's hard to hold up that hologram all yeah. the time. It's a lot easier just to be truthful and honest and kind you know, um, and and it's a lot easier to be that or be your authentic self, as you say, than it is to try and affect something to create an effect. Because then you go, why am I trying to create this effect? What What, what is it that I'm after? Yes. And, and to me as an actor, yeah, okay, I can step into a role for six months and step in and out, you know, action, cut, action, cut. Okay, drop back in. What is it? what are the needs of this character at the time? What do I want to say as this actor? You can pop into that. In life though, it's like, just be a, be a, <laughs> be a student of life. Yeah. You know, listen to people. I've found that i I learn way, I, I learn so much more by listening than talking.
0: You spoke about that beautiful saying about you have to know where you've come from to know mm. how to move forward. You mentioned before that Jamie mm. was in an accident when he was 18. How did that affect you? That sounds like it was quite traumatic.
1: Yeah, deeply. It, um, it, it, it really put a rupture at the time through the family. I was in England. I was in London when I got the call from Mum, and she said, job's been in an accident. And I remember I was on a riverboat supposed to be having a good time with a mate going down the Thames, you know, and I was like, what, what? Um, well, that's what I had been there. I got the phone call from the people who were staying at where cell phones weren't around in 1984. And And she said, it's okay, don't come home, he's in a coma. So Jamie Jamie was in that coma, I believe, for three months. Jeez. And for the first few weeks, every, at the same time that he was hit on the Saturday night, that's after the grand final, Hawthorne-Essendon grand final, at the same time, he would go into cardiac arrest or he would just plummet. (laughs) and it was like he they would have to bring him back around again so i my my memory of the whole thing is mum mum's very spiritual and and she was like job if you have to move on move on mm. and dad was hang on hang on hang on so i believe it was really tough for them and then andrew had his own version of it my sister we've that's the thing we've never really seven of us sat down together and talked about it. It just was something that we all went through and we all had our own version of it. And that was one of the reasons why I started on TV as well, because I realized I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything for job, but if I went on this kid's show, I and this, what it was more about Not why I went on the TV, but because I wanted to do it, how I behaved on that TV show and what I was doing on that TV show was very much about this thought of Jamie's going to be in hospital he can watch me on TV and I can do the oh, things that we did so as sweet. kids you know we can I can do these dumb things that we did as kids and and that'll jar his memory and that'll help him you know Jamie's still he's he's in a wheelchair but he's found a way to beautiful beautiful example of life happens for you not to you mm. because there was a, he could look at that and go that just killed me as an 18 year old he was winning best on ground for old Melbourneian amateurs, footy, and he was larger-than-life figure, Jamie. He was probably going to be more famous than all of us, you know, in terms of whatever he would choose to do. But he's the first one to say today, I'm grateful for my life mm-hmm. and what I can do. And that's where we're at.
0: Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, it just shows you how... In an instant, how life can change. How hmm. one minute it can be all right and good, and then next minute it's just it can be so utterly different. Hmm. For you, having gone through that, how has that changed your perspective on life?
1: Well, pretty much, pretty much like that. He stepped off a corner. He stepped off a corner looking across the road. He was looking across the road at a car that he was talking to people in that car and another car was coming the other way, had timed its run through a traffic light. So mm-hmm. it been, as the car was coming down the hill, it had been a red light and it slowed down and when it went green, floored it, Jamie stepped out, took him out. And I think how it's changed me, I, one is to appreciate life and, these moments that we have, but also, again, like I just said, that, that life is just his example. Life happens for you. And I keep getting that example mm. again and again and again where if I could view something as, oh, I really wanted that. Why did that happen? I can't believe this occurred. And you go, Shit. And then it's like, well, well, hang on a second. Just step back, take a few deep breaths and just watch what happens over the next few days.
0: Exactly. Because
1: this is all going to make sense.
0: There's that beautiful saying that obstacles are detours in the right direction.
1: Love it. I love it. We never know that at the time. Yeah. You can rue them and go, (laughs) why does that happen? And then you go, nah, just, just, just chill. And you're where you're meant to be and you're learning what you need to learn.
0: How has Jamie, mm. you said that he views life like that, life happens mm. for you, not to you. I mean, there's one thing you and I talking about that, but he's the one in the wheelchair. Yeah. How has he managed to get his head around that? Because a lot of people wouldn't.
1: Well, I mean, that's really a question for him. Yeah. What, what I understand when I see with his artwork, he, he puts a lot of – the emotion yes. and what he views—he's become a uh, very astute observer of life mm. and people. His bullshit detector is <laughs> off the charts. He spots it. He sees things that others don't because he's just—that's his life. He's a—he's just—he a, just watches what goes on. So I—I I, I really can't answer that question. I, I just see his bravery. And and his persistence and determination. Mm. There you go. He's so determined in, in that regard. Yes. He has his other foibles and, and demons. We're human, we all do. We mm. all have our issues, even the gurus and the ones that yeah. we that we deify and go, geez, they're so smart and all their lives put together, but we're human and we all
0: have our our challenges. Our things. It's funny you mm. say that about how he observes more and you can see it in his beautiful artwork and i was watching this amazing movie uh, it's about rundas and he's a great spiritual teacher and his life and it was it's called mm. rundas going home for anyone that wants to watch on netflix anyway he talks about the stroke that he had and he says i don't wish the stroke on anyone but I wish you the grace of the stroke. Mm. And what he means by that is he said that the stroke turned him inwards and that inwards is just the most beautiful thing that he's ever felt. And I thought, wow, that's such an interesting way to think about something that we'd all be, because mm. he, he couldn't talk properly after that. He didn't have the use of his legs and one of his hands and looking at him physically, he was a, a lot more ill. Mm. But he said that stroke gave me grace Mm. And it's kind of a similar thing you were talking about with your brother, and I just think that's a nice way, a nice way to look at that.
1: He's a very, very interesting fellow, and I think I think that if I look back at my life, especially with when I learned that I had a stutter, I didn't realise I stuttered as a kid. But upon sort of being curious about it and asking mum and dad about things, I was taken to a speech therapist at the age of four. Because I couldn't get my words out, and I didn't know that. I just you know that I, I, my memory of it was going to see this lady that was really nice to me, and we played games. But then, at the age of uh, twelve, and I was I was made the captain of school at the Mount Eliza Primary School. or won this award and had to get up and make a speech. And I was so anxious about moving the next year, leaving that primary school and going to secondary school. That um, when I got up to make this speech to say thank you for the award, I nothing would come out. No words would come out. And I, my body was on fire and uh, it was like, I was going to explode. And I went home and mum said, how did you go today? You know? And I said, well, I got a book. I won the award and here's my trophy or my, my certificate inside, but I couldn't talk. And she said, that's cause you stutter. And I said, what is, what do you mean? And then I became acutely aware of the stutter over that summer. And by, By by the time I arrived at year seven at Peninsula Grammar, I couldn't say my name if someone asked me to say my name, a teacher. And I got help through the years for my stutter, but sure did teach me humility. And I know that humility was what I believe made me People responded to me on Perfect Match on the game show because I could tell when I, I didn't go on that show. I went on that show to have fun. I was 21 when I went on that show. I was a 21 year old boy and I'm on there having fun. So I didn't go on there to make fun of people. And I wasn't a radio show guy like. Greg Evans was the previous mm. show, very quick-witted and, you know, how equipped and very professional. I wasn't that guy. But what I could see was when a contestant got up in front of me and they were in there, they were out of their ordinary, they're sitting in front of 300 people, studio audience, four cameras running around, lights on them, makeup, sweat, all that stuff. I could see in their eyes when they were about to get in, when they were getting in trouble. So I, I was like, oh, and I'd say, okay, uh, number two, you okay? Yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll come back to you. I'll go to you, number three. And, and I know that people responded to that, but that was what I learned from my stuttering.
0: Isn't that stuttering amazing? Days.
1: Yeah. And it just, it just, I just had a, there was an innate knowing that I could tell when people were getting in trouble with their communication. And, and I hated that. I hated watching them struggle and I, I wanted to help them. So, and I knew that the best way to do it was give them some space and then you'd find your way.
0: I think that's so beautiful. Would you say that you do that a lot now?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I do. Certainly through the charity that I started with my men's team, Mm. it's all about about helping assisting men to, one, get to their emotions, understand their emotions through their own exploration, but also to communicate them.
0: I wanted to talk about that, my men's team, and Mm. how that came about Mm. because there was a time, obviously, that, like I said, you're very well known in Australia and you were on that Amazing Models Inc. in America mm. <laughs> and a heap of other different things. You're on, you've been in some amazing films and mm. done all these things. But there was a time where you found yourself not having enough money mm. and you have three kids and a wife and mm. you, you felt yourself crumbling a bit. How did things get to that stage? Oh.
1: Well, it's a series of paper cuts, really. Yeah. I, can't, I can't put it down to any one momentous occasion. Like for job, getting hit by yeah. a car. For me, it wasn't like that. Like I said, I had no experience of, not many experiences of failure in my career, mm. right up to 2002, three, four, five, whatever. I mean, it was like just things kept rolling. Yeah, sure, I didn't get some roles that I wanted to get and blah, 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 but that's the game. yeah. Yeah, 9-11 happened um, and that that was a, a huge thing for the world, right? Wasn't it? It was a, yeah, a, massive. A, a massive experience for the world to wrap their head around. Suddenly the world was not safe anymore. Show business, there were strikes, director's strikes, actor's strikes, producer's strikes. SAG put this thing in saying a one rule. So, uh, so if, uh, I couldn't, if I wanted to do something in Australia, if it wasn't SAG, they weren't allowing me to do it mm. or you'd lose your sad card <laughs> you know it's this bizarre wow. confluence of things that that started to undermine what i wanted my intention so i've learned that in order to change something or first of all the only thing we can count on in this world is that things are going to change mm. that's the one that's the only thing i reckon yeah. you can count on is that something's going to change so what are you going to do what steps are you going to take? And it, and to get through things, you have to take action. And so <laughs> we were really, really skint on money. And I was doing, I was making movies, but they were for $100 a day. They were called uh, SAG, low budget, whatever they were, and you get paid. Everyone got paid a hundred bucks a day. Wow. Even if I'm working with Jeremy Irons, <laughs> I'm standing as seen on the Paramount lot working with Jeremy Irons and, and uh, Laura Dern. Jeez. And I'm like, and I'm making a hundred bucks a day. And I can't pay for my groceries mm. and I'm not having a great time with my kids. Meaning that the kids aren't having a great time with me because I'm frustrated. I don't, know what to do so in the end I put an email out to the fathers at the school an open email I don't know what possessed me it was a Tom Cruise moment out of what's that movie that he did Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, Maguire. Ma- Jerry Maguire moment <laughs> and I've gone I'm struggling if there's anyone any other dads here that that are going through a similar thing I'll be in my garage studio at at 7 30 on a Thursday night I'll be there. And I just left it at that. Well, 23 guys turned up. That's and some, some bought beers, some bought chips. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, what are we going to talk about? So I just basically shared what was going on. And in that sharing, I felt, I felt the defin- – I, I got the definition of, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm. And I shared this problem with these, what I was going through, I'm being a dickhead to my kids. I'm yelling at the kids. They called me, a, the kids had a, Ali and the kids did an intervention with me in the living room. The kids want to talk to you, Ali said one day. And and, and she gave them the space and I shut up and, and they told me what they thought. And it was basically, you're a yelly dad. Mm. You know, you keep yelling at us. And I was like, oh boy, it just c- crushed me as a father. And knowing that they weren't, weren't responding to me and I was so...
0: It's the worst when you hear it from your kids, I think, as well because you just love your kids so unconditionally and you, you know that you just want to be the best version of you you can for them and it's hard and especially mm. when finances get into it. It's so stressful. Mm. That's a, that's stressful and you you're trying to be, I'm assuming, the breadwinner and when you feel that you're failing at that, there's a lot of shame that comes with that too.
1: Absolutely there is. And again, what I understood from that was it's it's my they're my feelings. Yeah. And I need to do it. I've got to be responsible for my stuff. The kids can't fix it. Ali can't fix it. So it's like, what can I do? And it just was a real eye opener. So on that I started reading more and being counseled more and seeking other men not so much for their advice so much but but hearing their stories too yes. and knowing that i wasn't alone mm. and so i that was the germ the seed of the of the men's team and then when we moved to australia five years ago with the kids and i want to say the kids moved to australia because they were american and so oh, they've moved to Ali yes. and i moved back i was lonely and we, my friends are in Melbourne my schoolmates and a lot of my guys when I moved to Sydney who I used to know, a lot of them moved away. So I really missed the men's team. So I went, I need to formalize this. And I started I created the charity. Well, actually first of all, a lot of men that I met, I was like I'd make mental notes. Would they be a good team member? Would that work? Would this, you know? So I, I started getting a little book going of of numbers and people that I collected along the way. And and I put the call out about a year later and said, listen, I've got this idea where well, we circle up once a month and you can't give advice. You're not allowed to give advice to each other unless the person asks for it. Yeah. But um, we sit around and we, we check in at a number where you're at between one and 10. And if you're a 10, we better call someone a professional in. But if you're, a, oh, sorry, number one, you better call a pro. If you're 10, you're feeling pretty good. And that's where it all started. And so now we formalized it as a charity and and off we go.
0: What have you found in the sharing, in the men sharing their their stories with each other?
1: We're not alone. Yeah. And the power of sharing is incredible. And it's more about, you know, I find that when talking suicide or getting really down Mm. and getting to that place, it's, I've discovered it's, more about not wanting to feel a certain way. I don't want to feel this anymore, so I need to find a we have find different ways to not feel or to get through a feeling. And often within a team setting, just being witness, being witnessed in the sharing and witnessing is such a powerful tool to understand feelings better. And I know that in our meetings, there is no advice. You can't give advice, as I said, Though you can share if you've been in a situation, what you did,
0: mm.
1: what you did, the actions that you took. Because I think everything to change has to come from action. You've got yes. to take a step.
0: I 100% agree with that. I, I think also it for your mental health, but just in your dreams and desires, you can't just talk about them. You actually need to put action in to be able to achieve what you need and, and mental health as well. You can talk about not feeling great, but if you're not seeking advice from maybe a psychologist or a psychiatrist mm. trying to do things like meditation or mm. mindfulness, which are good to help, if you're not helping yourself, it's very hard to take that next step and, and get better.
1: Indeed. Indeed, and also Sarah, what I found in feeling when I mean, you do feel crappy, one of the things that I do, if I if I do feel really low, I go and find someone to assist. I'll yes. go help somebody else. Yes, because it's in that okay, I'm I'm going to be of service, and I'll help you, mm. and that and put all my focus on that what can i do how can i assist you and in doing that the it just seems to i don't know what it is but i end up feeling better for it and, and that will often often change things for me and my perspective
0: being of service is just one of the number one things that that makes us happier cuz we see how it helps another and we're wired to beings around each other and if we can we can make someone's day by helping them out, then that's a beautiful thing. I Mm -hmm. wonder for you, besides obviously my men's team, how did you get out of that, that dark hole that you're in?
1: It was therapy. It was having a better relationship with my kids, really being grateful, grateful, gratitude, the attitude of gratitude, and we've heard that. Yeah. But it is true. It's been grateful for what we have. And that was a massive shift for me, being grateful for what I had instead of the search for what I didn't have. Yes. And so when I started doing that and being grateful for what I had, that was a massive one. I'll tell you a quick story. Yes. That, that happened when River it was. So my son's 22 now. So going, when we were going through our deepest financial stuff, we were at the zoo and Riv wanted an ice cream and he was maybe three. Dada, dada, can I have an ice cream? I'm like, yeah. And I didn't have any cash in my pocket, so I had to go to the, 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 the you know, the hole in the wall, up, punch a hole in the wall in the bank and get out some money. Well, there was $23 in our account. Mm. That's it. That's all I had. And I'm like, man. Oh. I mean, there might've been money coming in later on or something, but it was 23 bucks in that moment. And I'm like, I've got to put gas in the car, I've got to get groceries, there's a bill to be paid or whatever. I got 20, 20 odd bucks in the bank. It's a $5 ice cream. And in that moment, I went, I've got, I've got enough money to buy him an ice cream. I, that's, this is what I have. And he's going to get the ice cream. So I took the money out and I took 20 bucks out. <laughs> And I got him the ice cream. Hmm. And he dropped it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but he got the ice cream. And it was, oh, the, it was that Eddie, I love Eddie Murphy that moment. Story. It's just sprinkles. They're just sprinkles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that story because I think mm. it would have really eaten at you your whole life had you not gotten him that ice cream. I just think that's such a beautiful thing. It's like you had this knowing that everything would be okay, even at the time. When it mm. wasn't
1: okay? Yeah, it wasn't okay. And and it was, things were here, we're talking about it. We got through and and it taught me a, a great lesson in that be grateful for what you have. Yes. Because oh, the, the endless chase for the whatever mm. that we do and it's just, it's so debilitating. Though if we sit back, you can, I'm not saying don't have intention to go do it and take action for what you want to have in your life. What I'm saying is be grateful also for what you do have because mm. you can build on that. And that's that's been a, a massive a massive thing.
0: I wonder, you mentioned uh, earlier on that your mother was quite a spiritual person. Mm. Are there any sort of spiritual principles or anything that you live by? I mean, you mentioned gratitude.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I have a motto that I, I do live by. One is, is do it now, do it well. Yeah, I do that. And the other one, I really, really work very hard to take the word don't out of my vocabulary mm. because don't doesn't compute in my brain. If yes. someone says, don't look at that, I will look at it. I don't want to do that job or or, or I, I, I don't want that. I, I don't want to be broke. Well, don't doesn't compute. It's just I want to be broke. And that's what the universe is hearing. Yes. That's what it hears. Yeah. So I I just really work hard to say what I want instead of what I don't want. So when I'm in the radio or whatever and someone will write something for me, like I'm doing an ad. Yeah. Don't go, you know, it's like, don't change that channel.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: You will never hear me say, don't change that channel. On Smooth FM. You're changing up the
0: live reads.
1: (laughs) I always say, keep it here.
0: (laughs) It's so funny you talk about this because on the way I took my son, he's only nine, to the bus stop this morning and we were having this exact conversation and I was saying, look, when you want things to come to fruition in your life, you can't say to the universe you don't want this because exactly to what you said, it hears only what you don't want, not what you do want. Yeah. So I think this all circles back to what we were talking about at the start. I mean, words are so unbelievably powerful.
1: Indeed. And to that, when people say things to you, there's a great book called The Four Agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz. It's really good. And, and one, of the, one of the four agreements is take nothing personally. Yes. You know, words. If someone says, you're ace, well, okay, thank you. Or you're the worst, well, thank you. Because that's their thing and... And, and so what other people, and so I've learned, (laughs) what other people think of me is none of my business. Yeah. And, and so it's like, really just, just try not, try, because it's hard sometimes not to take things personally, but yeah, don't, (laughs) don't take things personally. Take things personally.
0: What is the best advice that you have ever been given?
1: Be the best you can be. Mm. Be the best you can be. And that's what I do. Like I said, do it now, do it well. I know if I'm given a task and I, it's like do it, eat the frog. Have you ever heard of that one, eat the frog in the morning, right?
0: I think I have, but I don't so, think I've ever understood what it meant. Oh, well, so I mean, eat you, the frog You is, must explain.
1: Do the gross thing first. Do the thi- do the hardest mm. thing first. Yeah. So if eating a frog is yes. the worst thing that you know you could possibly do, because you might be eating a prince, you never know. Yeah. Do the hardest thing first. Yes. Right. Do it first and do it as well as you possibly can because then you know that when you've left that behind, you go, I couldn't have done that better. I couldn't have put any more into that.
0: Mm.
1: And if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, at least then you know, you know you've know, you given it everything.
0: What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn?
1: I think it's not everything is about me because mm. we're all in our own movie. We're all the lead role in our own mm. movie. Right, so whatever anyone does around you, or well, I'm the lead role, so it must be about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's not. I say 99 out of 100, it's not about you. Yeah, because no one cares. <laughs> it's right? so true. No one gives a crap. Yeah, they're all. Everyone's in their own movie. No one cares. Yeah. So I think it's external validation. Yes. It's getting so caught up with what other people think about me, or, or again, what I have to say is so important. It's a very childish place to be in, a very immature place to sit. So, like I said, no one really cares. So, in that moment, everyone's out there doing their own thing. They're all living their own life. So, for me, it's about go for life, be the best version of myself, do the best I can, be kind,
0: Hmm.
1: always, always be kind, and... Stop expectations like yeah. my actions oh, yes. Stop like, right? expectations. that's my bugaboo. That's yeah. my bugaboo is expectations. If I could just release myself from having expectations of what I'm saying or gee, what I'm saying is so profound right now, you're <laughs> going to go out there and change your life. It's like no, no, I And mean, you know, I know listeners in the car right now having a having a listen and going along, and that's great, yeah. Though I can't have an expectation that I'm changing anything or doing anything, mm. just living my best life, doing the best yes. I can, and not not having an expectation that what I do is going to have any change or whatever. If it does, yeah. great. If it doesn't, that's totally fine too. Mm.
0: Do you have a favourite prayer or saying or mantra?
1: This too shall pass.
0: Mm. I love that one. I yeah.
1: well, when do it's you? the
0: darkest of nights. I say this too shall pass. I have a nice one that I actually got not that long ago and it's from Yogananda, who is a famous yogi that's no longer with us. He wrote autobiography of a yogi. And the translation of what he was saying was, spirit, I will reason, will and act, but please guide my reason, will and actions to the highest and best thing you want me to do. Whoa. And I say that one every morning. Do you really? Yeah.
1: Oh, that's so impressive.
0: Yeah, oh, I, I, I do it when I I do meditation every morning, and mm. when the meditation finishes, I because you you're in that real zone. Mm. And with my eyes closed, there are three prayers I say. I say that one, I say one from A Course in Miracles. Mm. And then there's another one from the prayer of St. Francis, which is really beautiful and I heard once in a Wayne Dyer book. And Mm. I always say it's funny because I'm Jewish and this is the most Christian prayer, not that I'm religious or it matters, but it's a really beautiful prayer just about giving back. And I've memorized it and I say that in my head and I just do it because it's all about just setting a nice intention for the day and maybe getting the help from the people that we can't see that guide us.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in asking. I often do that going into audition rooms or places that I feel like I need my posse around me. Yes. And, and I have my, my spirits in the sky. I've got my family yeah. in the sky. And I do that before a theatre show, walking out, before I leave my dressing room, I say, come with me. Mm. Come with me out on the stage and and be with me and and let's tell this story together. Mm. That really, I I love what you're doing.
0: Do you do gratitude at the end of the night?
1: I do. I I do three things. Mm. I go through phases when when I remember to do it, but I do have my notebook beside me. I like to get things out of my head before I go to sleep.
0: Yeah,
1: And one of those things is three things that I'm grateful for, for the day. Beautiful. It just helps me really shine a light on the good things that are happening. Yes. Cuz I think what we focus on, you know, that's what we end up creating. So it really helps me to to focus on on the great things that are that are occurring.
0: Have you had a very mystical experience or anything like that? What's what's been your greatest mystical experience?
1: <laughs> um, oh, my see my wife attracts ghosts. <laughs> so we've had a couple of those. Really freaky deaky.
0: <laughs> what do you mean
1: she tracks them? We owned a house in uh, the Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, and it happened to be sitting on a, a Native American burial site or right nearby. So, <sighs> Native American, there's the Native American old fellow used to stand at the end of the bed. Bad <laughs> <laughs> <Fair laughs> income. <laughs>
0: Didn't that freak you out?
1: Yes. I never saw it. I never saw it. She would tell me. (gasps) She saw it. And she seems to attract things like that, energies. Yes. Like that. For mine, yeah, I've had a few different ones. Adelaide's a place things like that go on. (laughs)
0: Really?
1: Weirdly. Adelaide's one of the most beautiful places I know. I love it there. I remember being there years ago and- my partner at the time, she had, she goes, is, is your hand on my face? <laughs> <I> said, no. <laughs> it was like three o'clock in the morning. She goes, There's a hand on my face? <laughs> anyway, so there was that. No, I did have an experience where my when my uncle, my dear uncle passed away and I was with a healer at the time. Yes. And she said to me, he's here. Now, whether, you know, if we're getting into woo-woo territory, I understand that. But what I was going to say to you, whatever it takes, it's whatever it takes to feel good, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Exactly. And when you have your own experiences of metaphysical things, it becomes reality for you. I've spoken to enough people in my time and I ask this question to everyone, what is your most mystical experience? And I get all different answers. And they're from the people you would not even think of. So exactly. Your beliefs are your beliefs.
1: Yep. And I'm not even going to say you're right or wrong on any of it. Yeah. You have your thing. Yes. It's okay. It's your thing. So yeah, my uncle passed away and she she said, he's here now. And I'm like, and he had a very specific way of breathing mm. and his vibe was very specific that's all I could hear. And I'm like, what the heck, you know, and he gave me a message that I'll never forget. So, uh, yeah, that's that was mine. I heard a lot of great stories about things like that. So, I'm, but, I am a believer. I think we're, we're energy. So, it yes. has to happen. We've got to go somewhere. Our Absolutely. body becomes lifeless. What happens to that energy, you yeah. know? and I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that.
0: What is a life of greatness to you? Wow. Well,
1: a life of greatness, a life, I would say that's a life well-lived and maybe how do I get there? I touched on it before. I think being of service mm. is that. I think having gratitude for the things that I have and accepting the things that that I can't change mm. and just taking action, always taking action.
0: Cameron Daddo, you are a truly beautiful soul. Thank you for your wise words today. I'm truly grateful for this conversation. Thank you.
1: Sarah, thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to saragrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatnesses executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.